Very good morning to each and every one of you. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 19, please. And I'll ask our brother Dean to kindly read the first seven verses. The last time I spoke to you, uh, uh, the last couple of times I spoke to you on Jonathan, and uh, we finished off in chapter 18. And um, today I hope to cover some points about him uh, from chapters 19 and 20. But we'll read 1 Samuel 19, 1 to 7, please. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in him. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul feared to kill me. Therefore, please be on your guard until the morning, and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then, what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good for you. For he took his life in his hand and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in time. Thank you, Dean. Last time in uh, chapter 18, the previous chapter and verse 7, we saw that the women of the land was singing that Saul had slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And we saw that unfavorable comparisons uh, created tensions between them. And then for the rest of the chapter, it's devoted to Saul's various attempts in trying to uh, kill uh, David. And now by chapter 19, we see that um, Jonathan was under orders to kill him as well. Um, you see, it is recorded, uh, even though he is under orders to kill him, that in verse 2 it says, Saul's son delighted much in David. He delighted much in David. I want you to notice, my brother, my sister, this morning, that his loyalty to David overcame pressure from his own father. He is one of those in scripture whom family took the second place for him. He always put the things of God first. He delighted much in David, even though his father ordered him to kill David. Do you remember Elisha? How uh, his desire to kiss his father and mother goodbye this could have proved an impediment for his service for God, but he did not allow that to happen. Then, if you remember, James and John, they left their father 
in the boat to follow the Lord Jesus when he called them. And do you remember the Lord Jesus himself? Uh, He was to be found in his father's business rather than among his kinsfolk and his acquaintances. You see, the Lord's work always comes first. The things of God, obedience to his command always comes first and family and other things come, should come second in our lives. In fact, God has commanded in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, it tells us that in the context of discipleship, the Lord has indicated that if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So to be a disciple, we have to put him first. Then next I want you to notice this in verse 3. It tells us that um, his interview with Saul was in a field in full view of David's hiding place. You see, Jonathan was keen to act as a mediator to douse this hatred between Saul and David. And conciliation, you know, it's a sensitive business. Um, He was anxious to be seen above board. So what did he do? He met with Saul in an open field where David could also watch him and hear what he had to say. He wanted to be even-handed in his attempts at mediation. You see, um, we have an example in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 13, uh, where Moses was trying to mediate between two parties. And if you remember, uh, one of the two parties was wrong, because in Exodus chapter 2 verse 13, it tells us that him that did the wrong, it tells us. But how did Moses speak to the two men, even though he knew that one of them was in the wrong? Well, it tells us in Acts chapter 7 verse 26 that when he addressed both parties, this is how Moses addressed them. He said, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? That means he addressed both of them as though neither one was guilty. He took an even-handed approach. He wanted to be a mediator, but he wanted to be equal to both sides, even though he knew that one party was innocent. In the dispute between Eudeus and Syntyche, Paul, he remained neutral. And he appealed to both of them when he was addressing them in Philippians. So my brother, my sister, I'd just like to remind you this morning, like these dear men, those who want to be, uh, who want to mediate, who want to help solve problems between believers, we need to be transparent, we need to be impartial, we need to be diplomatic, just like Jonathan was. This was one of his qualities. And then next I want you to notice in verse 4. It tells us there that Jonathan spake good of David. Speaking good of David. You see, if you look carefully at the words in those words, in that verse, you will see that 
Jonathan expressed sentiments that are reminiscent of the character and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will see here, uh, when he speaks about David, he speaks about uh, his sinlessness, his good works, his willingness to sacrifice. Uh, he speaks about the great salvation won. All these are things that we too can speak about the Lord Jesus Christ when we are meeting others. Wherever, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in our schools, whether it's in our families, we should be those who are found to be speaking good about the Lord Jesus Christ. My brother, my sister, be as forthright in your personal witness to him, just like Jonathan was of David. Now, uh, uh, for the rest of this chapter, uh, we don't see um, uh, from verses 8 to um, the end of the chapter, we don't see Jonathan mentioned again. So I will move on to chapter 20, and I'll ask our brother Dean to read the first six verses, please. 1 Samuel 20, verses 1 to 6. 1 Samuel 20, verses 1 to 6. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But David said, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field, so both of them went into the field. Please look carefully at the words at the end of verse 2. When Jonathan refuses to believe the evil in his father's heart, he says, why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. It is not so. You see, Jonathan could not bring himself to believe his father's evilness and his wickedness in his heart. 
Here's my next point to you, my brother, my sister. You see, when it comes to our own family, we cannot normally see the evil that is in our own hearts and their hearts. You see, the Bible tells us that the human heart is wicked. The Bible tells us that our minds are filled with wickedness. But sometimes we cannot see the wickedness in our own hearts and we certainly cannot see it in our own family members. When it comes to our brothers, our sisters, our fathers, our mothers, our children, we never see the evil in their hearts. And so here was Saul plotting to kill David and Jonathan couldn't believe that he would do such a thing. Even in my own church in Colombo, as I'm sure in every church around the world, the, one of the main problems that we have is that parents, for example, do not see the um, wickedness in their children's heart. If you tell them, you know, your child is doing such and such, or they are um, saying this, they're doing that, the first thing parents would do is that they would not believe it. Our child is not capable of doing such a thing. Our um, relative is not capable of doing such a thing. But here we see a very good example. Saul was full of wickedness. We can all see that. Can we not see that? He's plotting to kill David. But what does Jonathan say? Why would my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. It is not so. The son could not see the wickedness in his father. Remember, uh, my brother, my sister, that we must be able to grasp the wickedness in our hearts and we should also always remember that those who are nearest and dearest to us, they are also capable of evil thoughts and desires in their hearts as well. <clears throat> now, uh, remember Peter, when he was told of the denials that he would do, what was Peter's reply in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 35? Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. He couldn't see the wickedness in his own heart. And just like that, we also cannot ourselves imagine ourselves putting a foot wrong and neither can we believe the worst of our friends and our family. So Jonathan was all unsuspecting of his father's guile and vindictiveness, but later he was forced to admit the error in his thinking. Why? Because his father attempted to kill him himself, then only he realized the wrong that in his thinking. Look at verse 33 of chapter 20. <clears throat> and Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. So only when he himself got under threat and things got out of hand, then his thoughts came right. Next, I want you to notice, my brother, my sister, in verse 6, about how David got Jonathan to lie for him. What did David do? Well, he says that, um, from the portion we just read, he tells Jonathan 
that go and tell your father that I have some business to do in Bethlehem. That is why I will not be at the feast. Now, you see, <clears throat> the fabrication had an added weight to it because of the reference to the Lord's things. You see, the yearly sacrifice, it says in verse 6, when David and Jonathan concocted this lie, they brought the Lord into it as well. You see, it is bad enough to invent a tale, but to draw the Lord into it for effect and impetus, that is a shameful thing. Uh, remember, in Genesis, chapter five, uh, in Genesis chapter 27 and verse 20, do you remember the story of Esau and Jacob? And uh, Isaac was asking, how did you get here so quickly? And what did he say? And Jacob's story was convincing because of the reference to the Lord sending the deer his way. That is why Isaac believed him so easily. Because he added the word Lord in there when he told the story. It's a shameful thing when you choose to deceive somebody else. But when you add the Lord into the story for the added uh, uh, flavor that it can give the story and make people believe. Let us be aware and not do the same thing that uh, Jonathan and David did here. And then <clears throat> I want you to notice next. How sad it was that Jonathan allowed David to talk him into this duplicity. You see, it was misplaced loyalty. And the same way, my brother, my sister, uh, it is misplaced loyalty for an employee to exaggerate the efficiency of a product. It is misplaced loyalty for uh, an employee to say that a boss is out when he's sitting at his desk, or to make a promise of a delivery date that is unattainable. This is the same principle. We should never choose to deceive somebody else. Jonathan allowed David to talk him into this duplicity. My brother, my sister, please do not allow anybody to bounce you into doing anything for them that you know to be wrong. That is a very important principle from scripture. And David's plan, it even endangered Jonathan's life. Just like Abraham's deceit, it compromised Sarah, if you remember from scripture. So at times we need to think through the consequences of our actions as far as others are concerned. Let us <clears throat> avoid doing anything that could have disastrous effects for them. And then I want you to notice in chapter 20 and verse 11, Jonathan's conversation with David was in the field, it tells us in verse 11. It was away from uh, prying eyes and it was away from flapping ears. You see, here's the next lesson that we can learn from the way Jonathan conducted himself. Not all conversations are suitable for public consumption. For example, the Lord Jesus himself, he followed the same principle. Uh, if you remember in Mark chapter 9 and verse 33, the Lord Jesus wanted to give some criticism to his disciples. And how did the Lord Jesus choose 
to give this criticism. Uh, he chose to do it in the house. In the house. He did not do it where others would hear. He did not do it where he put on a public show and he uh, pushed them down. No. He waited until he went into a house where it was just him and his disciples gathered before he asked them the difficult questions. And so what did Jonathan do? He took David into the field, away from the prying eyes and the ears of others, before he spoke to him. Remember, Joseph of old, and you remember Joseph and his brothers, and the story is uh, in Genesis chapter 45 and verse 1. What did Joseph do? What is the example that we can follow from him? He said, cause every man to go out from me. And then he spoke to his brothers. So let us remember that letter, uh, lesson. Let us be sensitive about where and when we say certain things. For example, there are matters which should never be heard in the presence of unsaved or in the presence of children. Then I'd like to move on to uh, the next part, which I'll ask Brother Dean to read, verses 13 to 15 of chapter 20, please. For Samuel 20, verses 13 through 15. May the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. I want you to notice very carefully at verse 13. Here we see that Jonathan desires two things from Dave, of David. Firstly, uh, that thou mayest go in peace and then the Lord be with thee. First, he wanted him to enjoy peace. Second, he wanted him to have the presence of the Lord with him. Now, the first was dependent on the second. You see, God's presence has, uh, brings great enjoyment, a constant enjoyment in our life. Um, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 37, we are told how at the beginning he enjoyed God's presence with him. Go and the Lord be with thee. And then uh, when he was governing the whole nation... Also, he had the presence of the Lord with him. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 10, the Lord God of hosts was with him. And then between these two high points, David constantly experienced the Lord's presence. Remember, Psalm 23 and verse 4, Thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You see, my brother, my sister... I would like this to be an encouragement for you and me as well. Promises of the Lord's presence with us is well documented throughout Scripture. Not only did 
David and Jonathan know that promise, but so many men and women who serve God also hang on to that promise. Remember Moses, God told him, certainly I will be with thee. You see, such promises are to be remembered. Such promises we need to lay on to. Throughout scripture, these promises are given to us. So that in our day-to-day life, when we are facing various trials and tribulations and temptings and testings, we can remember that the Lord will be with us. And we need to remember that promise. Now, you see this promise that... uh, Jonathan remembered, or this uh, Jonathan's appreciation of this divine uh, presence, you see, he understood this because of his family's history. The Lord be with thee as he had been with my father. As he had been with my father. That means Jonathan understood that the Lord was with his father, but that the Lord was not with his father anymore. As he hath been, it says in verse 13. You see, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14, it is recorded of when uh, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, it tells us. And this haunted him right through until his dying day. Even through all the time that he was chasing David and all those times, The Lord was no more with Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 28 and verse 15, right at towards the end of his life, he finally realized it when he said, God is departed from me. Saul did not have the presence of God with him. That is why all these things were going wrong in his life. You see, my brother, my sister, if you have lost the presence of the Lord from your life, it is not difficult for you to get it back. Saul had lost it, and he never made any attempts to get it back. The Lord's presence had been with him. No more it was with him. What do you have to do if you want to gain the Lord's presence in your life again? It's very simple. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5. This tells us what we need to do to bring the Lord back into our lives. We need to go back to where it all started, where we had that first love, where we once met the Lord. When he came into our life, we go back to that point in our life and remember what it was that we did, how it was that we invited him to our life, how it was that we enjoyed that first love in our life. And when he comes back into our lives, he will take control of our life and no more going this wayward way where Saul was going from incident to incident, trying to kill this one, trying to kill his own son, to a purposeless living. If you are in that position this morning, where you were once with the Lord, but now you have found yourself having drifted off, my brother, my sister, all you have to do is remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, And repent and do the first works. Just remember how it was that it all began for you. Go back to where it all started. Do that all over again. And you will find the presence of the Lord come back into your life. You will find him taking control of your own life. 
Then I would like us uh, uh, to notice from verses 14 to 17, Jonathan's desires for David had also a future aspect as he was worried for the next generation. Because of the lack of time, I'll not read those verses. You can read it later. He was convinced that when David ascended the throne, just like the oriental custom was, that he will wipe out his nearest challengers. And what would happen? That uh, Jonathan's seed would be wiped out. So what did uh, Jonathan do? He elicited a promise from David that he would look after his descendants. You see, my brother, my sister, this is an important lesson for us. You see that we have an obligation to the next generation. Just like Jonathan was worrying about his next generation and what would happen to them, we too have an obligation to the next generation here. You see, we all believe that we are the last generation. We live in hope that the Lord Jesus would soon return for us. And may it be so. But in tandem, we have a responsibility for the future testimony, for the future of the Lord's work. Um, Never be like Hezekiah. When he was warned of danger for a coming generation, he seemed complacent. Um, uh, He was content that he would never see it or it would not happen in his day. Uh, In 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 19, he said, It is not good if peace and truth be in my days. He wasn't thinking about the future. He thought it would happen in his days. Never be like that. Plan for the future. Make sure that the future of the church, uh, you see, the future of the church is dependent, um, among other things, on the transmission of truth from one generation to the next generation. And it is all our duty to make sure that our children are taught the truth, that they are prepared for the next generation to serve God, to carry on the work of the church. You remember what it said in those famous words in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Here's the lesson. Feel responsible for the emerging generation. Do all in your power to encourage them and to take care of them and to protect them. And that is what Jonathan did. He was worrying about the next generation. So he elicited a promise from David to protect them after his lifetime. Then I want you to notice the next lesson. From this pact where Jonathan elicited this promise from David, uh, I want you to notice that David was willing to keep this promise that he made to Jonathan. Now this is a not a straightforward thing or a rare thing. We all make promises, but sometimes we don't keep our promises. You see, it was the kindness of the Lord to spare Jonathan and his family. You see that in verse 14. But in implementing this commitment, it was David that implemented. He's the one who spared Mephibosheth. He's the one 
who decreed, He shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. David did it. But did you notice the way that David went about and did it? You see, Meshibopheth was a cripple. He was a rival. He was a fugitive. You could call him a dead dog. But now, every day he was being treated like a VIP. He was in the presidential palace. He was eating from the king's own table. What a lesson in grace and generosity. You see, uh, it was extending beyond all the bounds of duty. May we be like that. Don't just keep a promise and just stick to the word. Go beyond the bounds of duty. Keep your promises, but go beyond your promises as well. You remember Laban. He was a man who wriggled out of his commitments. Remember Simon the Pharisee. He gave what he had promised and no more. He gave, what did he give? A meal. And that also without a shred of basic courtesy. But on the contrary, David, he didn't go back on his responsibilities or he did not call a halt when duty was done. What he did, he did heartily as unto the Lord. And let that be a challenge to us, my brother, my sister. David kept his promise. Let us do more than what is required. Now, next I want you to notice this. Look at verse 18. Do you see there that it talks about the empty seat in verse 18? Thy seat will be empty. And then I want you to look carefully uh, at verse 25. Verse 25. And here, right at the end of verse 25, it talks about the place was empty. So here in verse 18, we have the empty seat. And then in verse 25, we have the empty place. What is the difference between the empty seat of verse 18 and the empty place of verse 25? You see, the contrast has often been drawn to this, the empty seat and the empty place. You see, at the end of life, will we, when we depart from this earth, will we leave an empty seat Or will we leave an empty place? An empty seat is someone who comes to church, who sits in their seat, and who goes away without making their presence felt. An empty place means that here is someone who has borne the burden with you, and when they are not there any longer, you feel that there is an empty place. Which would you be, my brother, my sister? When, you, when your life's course is done, will people say that you were in, in an empty seat? Or would you be a person whose place is missed? That brother, that sister did great things. Their place is so valuable to us. It's not there for us anymore. How would you feel? Uh, At the end of life, will we leave only an empty seat 
or will there be a real gap in the ranks? You see, when we live, we should live to be missed. We should not live to be uh, people who, when we die, nobody understands or knows what we did when we were here on earth. Do you remember, there were so many examples that I can give you from scripture of those who uh, dedicated their lives to God and when they left, that there was great sadness. Their place was missed. Remember Joshua, remember Stephen, remember Dorcas. In Acts chapter 8, verse 2, it gives us the, uh, the story of Stephen, what they thought about him after he left. What did they think about Stephen, do you think, uh, when he left? Well, in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, it gives us this little picture of how people valued him. It says that devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Devout men carried him to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Will you also be a person that when you pass away, will devout men carry you to your grave? Will there be great lamentation over you? Or will you be someone who's lived your life where you will hardly be missed? My brother, my sister, it's not too late for you to change your course and live a life that makes a real difference and pleases God. And then I want you to notice next that uh, in verse 29, um, we see the example where David's brother is used as the, um, as the excuse for David not being there at the table of Saul. Now, earlier in the chapter, in verse 6, uh, David had said, tell them that I am going to Bethlehem for the yearly sacrifice. And then in verse 29, we see that uh, Jonathan tells Saul, yes, David has gone to Bethlehem for the yearly sacrifice. And he adds David's brother in there as well into that lie. You see, my brethren, none of this carried any weight with Saul. He was suspicious of Jonathan's complicity right from the start. He knew that Jonathan loved David. Even though Jonathan told this lie for David, even though Jonathan used um, the yearly sacrifice as an excuse, even though Jonathan brought his brother David's brother into it as an excuse, yet Saul did not believe his own son. He knew where Jonathan's loyalties lie. You see, um, it is good, it is so good, when uh, we are, or uh, it is so good when our stand is known to everyone. It is so good that whether it's our workplace, whether it's our school, whether it's our family, they all know where we stand in regard to our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what Ruth's testimony was, um, what Boaz said about her? All the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. woman. Everybody knew what her stand was. Do you remember Paul's position to all? He said, I am not ashamed. Do you remember Onesiphorus? 
he said about him, he was not ashamed. And to Timothy, what does he tell us? He says, be not thou therefore ashamed. So let us not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let our stand be open. Let everybody know where we stand. Let us be open in our testimony for the Lord. Just like Saul knew exactly where Jonathan stood. His loyalties were not with Saul. His loyalties were with David. And then I want you to notice uh, another fact that emerges from Saul's uh, rantings here in verse 31. In verse 31 it tells us, Saul says, For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established nor thy kingdom. What's happening here? Here's a father worried about his son's inheritance. Saul is worrying when he dies, Jonathan is not going to inherit the kingdom. Jonathan is not going to get all that fame. Jonathan is not going to get all that wealth. That is the reason why Saul wants to kill David. But here's the lesson, my brother, my sister. You see, obviously, this was not the attitude of Jonathan. Correct? Because if he was so interested in the kingdom himself, if he wanted the throne, if he wanted the wealth, if he wanted the position, he would have helped his father to get rid of David. So what does this tell us? You see his attitude. What was his attitude? His attitude, I picked this example because I thought it was the same attitude as John the Baptist had when he said in John chapter 3 verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jonathan did not want him to become the big shot in the land. He was more than happy for himself to decrease and for David to increase. Isn't that a, a, a noble sentiment that should fit every believer's heart? Shouldn't we lead our lives characterized like that? If we lead our lives this way, where we look at all the other believers as higher than ourselves, let them increase, let me decrease, I can tell you we would achieve great things for God. I'm just coming to the end here, the last couple of minutes, and I just want to leave you with one final thought, and I'll ask Brother Dean to read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, the last two verses. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 41 and 42. 1 Samuel 20, verses 41 and 42. And as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Here's the final point for the day that I'd like you to remember, take with you. You see, they had come to a parting of the ways. And in verse 41, you can see the bowing, the kissing, the weeping. It all displays a mutual respect between David and and Jonathan. 
and but Jonathan still seemed a little preoccupied with the survival of his family rather than David's plight. Now, I want you to notice this. The last uh, three words of the chapter. He went into the city. He went into the city. You see, when David departed, he went in one direction. And as they parted, Jonathan left and went into the city. You see, this stands as an illustration of one who having put his hands to the plow, looking back. You see, um, why was it? This is the question I ask myself. Jonathan was very loyal to David. He protected him from his father. He did all those wonderful things for David. Why is it that he did not go with David when he went away that time? Why did he turn and go back into the city? He now knows that his father is going to kill him. He knows his father wants to kill David. Why did he not simply go with David to where he was going? You see, was it loyalty to his father that hindered him, do you think? Or was it the stigma of being associated with an outlaw that kept him back? Or did the love of material and physical um, comforts stifle his ambition for wholehearted commitment? You know, the palace, all the, you know, perhaps 300 red count Egyptian cotton. Um, what do you think it was that made Jonathan want to go back into the city rather than go with David? You see, it's a very important question because whatever the reason, he took his arrows and he went back into the city. David's course, it led him to the throne. Jonathan's course, it led him to a wall at Ben-Hadad with a spear right through his body. Here he was at the crossroads of his life. He had to make a very important decision. And what did he choose to do? You see, if he had stuck by David, do you know what would have happened to him? I'll tell you what would have happened to him. I'm sure this is what would have happened to him. 1 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 23. 1 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 23, the final verse that we'll look at for today. And there it tells us that David said, Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks yours, but with me you shall be safe. If he had gone with David that day, like David had told his followers, if you stay with me, you will be safe. You will be in safeguard. But what did Jonathan do? He chose to go where the comforts were, where his father was, where the pleasures of the world were in that city. You see, my brother, my sister, how vital it is for us to make the right choices at the crossroads of life. I don't know what it was that was going through Jonathan's mind when he made that final choice. 
But he made the wrong choice because David's path took him all the way to the throne. And all those who followed him uh, would have enjoyed those years that David reigned on the throne. But Jonathan perished. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ' desire for us was that he might sanctify us with his own blood, which he did. And since the cost to separate us for himself was so great, anything less that complete consecration from our life to the Lord Jesus Christ leaves us just as blameworthy as Jonathan. My brother, my sister, my friend, this morning, my challenge to you is this. Completely consecrate your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given everything for us. He has uh, shed his precious blood for us. He wants complete control of our life. You are right here at a junction. You have a similar decision to make like Jonathan. If you choose to go back into the city and enjoy the pleasures that the world has to offer for a season, your future is not guaranteed. But if you this day choose to follow the Lord, to place your trust in our God, to live a life that is holy and pleasing to Him, your future is in safeguard. Your life is safe. And you would have made the wisest choice that you could have ever made in your life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for this opportunity where we could learn uh, some lessons from the life of this man, Jonathan. We thank Thee, our Father, that Scripture is given to us that we can learn from the mistakes that others made in the past. We pray, our Father, that we would be those who would be willing to adapt our lives to what Thou hast uh, taught us from Thy Scripture, that we would be those that would choose to follow Thee that we would be those that would choose to make our life meaningful uh, and that we would be those that would want our lives here, the remainder of our lives to be worthwhile, lives led pleasing to Thee, uh, that would bring glory and honor to Thy name. Part us now with Thy blessings. We ask this in the altogether lovely name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.